Welcome to the Preacher Podcast, where we believe that preaching should be biblical. And for it to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. We talk to preachers about, well, preaching. Whether you have preached one sermon or 1,000, we're here to serve those who want to preach better. I'm your host, Alan Stanley. Hey everyone. One of the key challenges with preaching and preparing sermons is that the material that we're preaching from is never the same. I'm talking of course about the different parts of the Bible, narrative, law, prophets, wisdom, poetry, gospels, epistles, apocalyptic. Each of these genres, which is what they're called, are different and therefore they require different approaches when we come to study them and to preach them. We'll eventually look at all of them at some point on this podcast, but the episode that you're about to listen to is on how to preach the Gospels. We mainly focus on the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And for this conversation, I speak with Daryl Bach. And trust me, of all the people in the world to talk to about this, Daryl would have to be right up there. This is part one of a two-part conversation. I hope you enjoy Well, Daryl Bock, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Um, just take 30 seconds or so just to give um, an introduction to yourself. Okay, well, I'm a senior research professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, as well as executive director for cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center here at, at the seminary, and uh, have done a lot of work in Jesus and Gospels. That's where my work concentrates. So I suspect that's probably a little background for what we're going to be talking about. That's great. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is preaching the Gospels, focusing on the synoptic Gospels, but we can go into John if the conversation takes us there. Um, perhaps just to get us started, what's been your experience with, um, I guess, preaching the Gospels in terms of um, other people preaching the Gospels. Do the Gospels get a whole lot of preaching time in your experience? Depends where you are. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting when I did my doctoral work in Aberdeen in Scotland was how often the Gospels got preached in pulpits uh, in the UK, uh, far more generally speaking than you get uh, in which those texts get attention Generally speaking, the churches that I was circulating in the United States, the United States, Pauline epistles were very popular, topics were very popular, but actually working with uh, the Synoptic Gospels as a unit was um, not that common. And you dive into the Gospels now and again, depending on the topic, you dive into the Gospels as it relates to the themes that come up in preaching, but actually working with the Gospels in preaching was rare. Hmm. It's been my experience down here in Australia and New Zealand that if the Gospels do get preached, it's generally John's Gospel. That, um, yes, and that's because John's Gospel is easier for people, uh, easier for people in the church. How um, is it easier? 
Well, I like to tell people that if you think about the four Gospels, three of them tell the story of Jesus from the earth up, and one of them tells it from heaven down, and John tells the story from heaven down. From the very first verse, you know where John is taking you. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is CNN. I mean, it <laughs> just right from the beginning, you know what John, where John is taking you, and he does all the Christological heavy lifting for you in his gospel, whereas the synoptic gospels are really written in such a way that you watch it unfold for people who Jesus is more than a kind of the full disclosure, if I can say it that way. And that's actually how people come to Jesus. They come to Jesus. No one is born. uh, I like to say no one's born and comes to Jesus this way. The doctor gives them the swat of life and they go, wah, 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 Jesus, the second person, the ontological trinity, wah, wah, wah. You know, no one comes to Jesus like that. At some point, someone's got to explain how Jesus is the most unique human being who's ever walked the earth and who's a combination of deity and humanity. And, and, and then you have to watch that dawn on people. Well, the Gospels tell the story, and you watch it dawn on people, and you watch the Gospels tell the story with those kinds of sensitivities. And uh, people in the church uh, have to work harder in the synoptic Gospels in some ways to get it to Christology. And so they like John uh, as a result because John does all the hard work for them. It's like John does all the heavy lifting for them. He's their, he's their uh, weightlifter when it comes to theology. And so they go to John by default. Hmm. So is, is it that, um, you know, is John closer to the epistles? In, in, in some thinking? ways, yes. I mean, John is... John, I, uh, I know that you all have this in your sports uh, in Australia and New Zealand like we do uh, here in the U.S., and I always have to insert a sports analogy in somewhere, uh, and uh, uh, where you have video review, you know, where you're looking at something mm. and you're doing it and you're reviewing what's taken place. Well, um, some of the material in the Gospels is done very much with a video review reflection. In other words, the writer is coming from a perspective in which he knows the impact of the events that he's describing. He's able to look back in the midst of doing his writing. So he's not merely reporting, which is the way we often think about what the gospel writers are doing, but they're reporting in light of knowing where it is that the story has gone. And so, um, so that's another element in the equation of, of what's going on in the Gospels that makes it challenging. And, and John does that, uh, how can I say, more explicitly than the synoptics do. Hmm. Um, and so that's part of what produces the difference between John and the synoptics. So talk a little bit about, you said that the Gospel writers aren't merely reporting. Um, and talk a little bit about that from the synoptic point of view, because I think sometimes when we're preaching the Gospels, and, and let's think of the synoptic Gospels here, that we do think of them as merely reporting, rather than actually having a message, a theological message. Um, how important is that when it comes to preaching? It's pretty important. I like to tell people, when you think about the Gospels, and you think about it artistically, you can think about it in three ways. You can think about it as a photograph. You can think about it as a painted portrait, or you can think about it as an abstract painting. And um, and most people think they're dealing with a photograph, uh, you know, kind of a just the facts, ma'am, kind of report. Mm. But actually, it's a portrait. It's designed 
with a depth of understanding about who Jesus is and, and kind of where the events have taken us, that uh, there's a depth and a you. And this is why you get three. This is why you get four Gospels, for that matter. And certainly why you get three that overlap significantly is so you can build that, that depth. Because if we just had one story, it would be much more one dimensional. The Gospels fill it out. It's like I like to tell people it's like quadraphonic sound, you know, four speakers coming at you with each speaker doing a little bit of its own thing. And the blend is important as well as what's coming out of each individual speaker. That's the way the Gospels work. They have both their individual take that each Gospel writer is giving us. And then canonically, they work together to give us depth. So we're more in a portrait mode than we are a photograph mode as we think about the Gospels. It's not an abstract painting. An abstract painting would, might be the way uh, someone who's uh, more liberal theologically would see it. Uh, uh, you know, we get we get touches and little bits of Jesus in the midst of a much more complicated and blurred portrait. So, um, so th that's the way I think about the Gospels. Um, they are this interesting mix of reporting on the one hand, this is what happened, but the construction of the storyline, even though it has a chronological flow and a flow in the ministry of Jesus, is actually put together by the Gospel writer to, mm. to communicate a particular message with a particular set of emphases, which is why Matthew will discuss some things that Luke doesn't and that kind of thing, why Luke will do the same in reverse. And so um, being aware of that's very, very important because each gospel has a contribution to make to the overall portrait of Jesus in the Bible. It's really helpful. So what we're talking about is that the gospels have different audiences. They have, you know, there's the first audience to which Jesus himself um, you know, he was with, but then there's an audience for Matthew and Mark and Luke that are, you know, 30, 40, whatever years after Jesus was walking around. And, and, they're, done, and they're done with certain topical concerns that are the concerns of those audiences oftentimes. So it's often said, uh, although this can be overpressed, that Matthew is particularly Jewish in its concerns, okay, and Luke is more interested in a mixed audience that has a lot of Gentiles in it. I think that's basically true. Mark is very Gentile-oriented in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they all have very Jewish features. Luke has a lot of Old Testament and things like that in it, but the kinds of specific uh, law controversies that you see in multiple passages in Matthew virtually don't exist in Luke. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, where we get what's called the six antitheses, you know, you've heard it said unto you, but I say unto you, and it's done six times, the end of chapter five, only one of those shows up in Luke. Hmm. Which leads to another question. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of preaching on the Gospels, harmonizing accounts. In other words, um, you know, for example, in, in Matthew 5.20, it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, and now let's say someone is preaching from Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke um, has a different saying. He's, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And, and, you know, some will go into Luke and grab that and bring it into Matthew. Um, and so, and, and we could multiply examples of how that is done. Um, what's your take on that? Let each gospel writer speak in his own terms is the yeah. simple, short answer. Uh, and actually, what I say is, uh, you use the word harmonizing, I'll use the word flattening. 
Mm. You flatten the text. You make it say one thing when actually each of those texts is doing its own thing. And it's important to see what each of those texts is doing. Another classic example is blessed are the poor versus blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay. You've got blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew. You've got blessed are the mm. poor in Luke. Luke's doing a lot of things with marginalized people, with the poor. Um, now, oftentimes they're poor because of their commitments to God. So they're the pious poor. But, but people who are marginalized get a lot of attention in Luke. And people who are potentially marginalized get a lot of attention in Luke. And that socioeconomic element is an important part of what Luke, of, of who Luke is talking about, okay? Matthew has gone a slightly different direction in highlighting, highlighting the spiritual nature of this, of this poverty. But, uh, but Luke doesn't want you to lose the socioeconomic nature of that poverty. And both are biblical. Both ideas are biblical. So you don't want to wash them out against each other and simply combine them. And the way you know that in Luke, you've got alongside, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. You have woe to those who are rich. Okay. And that message is not woe mm -hmm. to those who are rich in spirit. Or if it is, it's not in the way that we might need, might mean that uh, in terms of spiritual um, capability. So, um, so you just let each gospel speak on its own terms. And that's where the quadraphonic sound comes from. The quadraphonic sound comes from recognizing that each speaker is delivering a message in its own terms that needs to be appreciated. And then any harmonization that comes, any combination of those things needs to deal with all the elements that are present from each voice uh, yes. in doing that and not just flatten it out and make it say the same thing. Yeah, so it's really about, and I, I've, you know, this is, I guess, second nature for for those who have been in the Gospels like yourself for years and years, but it's it's really paying attention to the author and what they are trying to do, and we're so used to paying attention to what's going on in the text, but we need to be sensitive to what the author is doing. Is that right? Or we may be paying a lot of attention to what's going on around us. Mm. Okay, uh, that may be causing us to read the text that the way the way we are. I tell people when you're interpreting, there are there are kind of four P's that you got to kind of keep your eye on. Um, there's your position, you know, where you live, where you live. Um, there's the power location that you have. There's the perspective that you bring, usually an influence of that of those first two. And then there's the peer pressure that's causing you to ask certain questions of the text. And you, as an interpreter, are being influenced by those things. Those influence the lenses that you read the text with. And to really hear the text, you've got to work pretty hard. One, you need to recognize that that's happening. That's the first thing, because a lot of people pretend that's not going on. And then having recognized that that's happening, really work hard to try and see if you can listen to the text. And I tell people the way you can know whether you're doing this or not is when a text catches you out. When it mm. says something that you don't anticipate, do you try and make it say the thing you want it to say, or do you really make an effort to listen to what it's trying to say? Yeah, that's great. Talk, um, talk, expand a little bit on peer pressure. Well, I, I think that we've got all kinds of peer pressure. And it's interesting, we've got peer pressure coming at us from both directions. We've got some peer pressure that's what I call cultural peer pressure, uh, the pressure to not be distinctively Christian, if I can say it that way. 
And then you got pressure from the other end that wants to be so distinctively Christian, uh, it may not actually be hearing the text. And then depending on which issue you're talking about, you might get one or the other. So just to walk into two very controversial areas, the whole LBGTQ conversation, which is a very complex conversation, there's a lot of cultural pressure about how Christians should respond to that space on the one hand. But if we go to issues of, of race and justice, there's a lot of pressure coming from within the church about how to respond to that that may close us off from hearing what it is that the text is saying. So uh, that, that pressure is huh, it, it's almost omnipresent, and it's also omnidirectional. Mm. Mm. Um, let's, I guess that gives us a little bit of a segue into um, talking about some of the themes of the Gospels. Um, the kingdom message is is the sum total, really, as I think about it anyway, of, of what Jesus is saying. But um, I get the impression that many think of the kingdom message as, as one aspect, you know, of Jesus's teaching. He taught about the kingdom, but he taught about other things. So I want to talk about the kingdom for a little bit. And firstly, in what ways should we be preaching the kingdom because I think at a at a very basic level, many people simply understand it as heaven. Now the kingdom is about um, the presence of the rule of God in the lives of people, uh, both individual and corporate. Uh, it also is about a establishment of a presence that is both now and not yet. There are certain benefits that we experience now. We experience forgiveness of sins now. We experience the indwelling of the Spirit, which enables us to walk in ways that are pleasing to God that we couldn't do beforehand. That's part of the promise. And that's rooted in covenant promises. That's not new. There is, you know, there was a promise to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. That's Abrahamic covenant. There was a promise that the line of David would be uh, the place where this deliverance would come from. That's the Davidic covenant. Then the new covenant says, I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to place the law in your heart. Or Ezekiel says, I'm going to wash you like water and I'm going to put my spirit within you. Um, and so this spirit enablement, which we've already received in an initial dose, if you want to think of it, you can think of it like a COVID two-part shot, okay? <laughs> you got the initial dose now, and you got more coming later. Uh, but uh, that's the first time I've thought about that metaphor. <laughs> we and, could get sidetracked on that for a little bit. I know. I, oh, I, don't, I don't want us to get in <laughs> lockdown. So, uh, so anyway, so um, when you think about that, um, that actually is part of the blessings that we have now. But eventually, we're getting going to a place where God's going to establish righteousness, uh, peace, shalom, which is the goal of the kingdom ultimately, and manifest it across the earth. In the meantime, we live as an enclave in the midst of a world that pushes against the existence of the kingdom. Uh, and some we people need to think, you might say some people think it's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's it's not so much a conspiracy theory as it is the spiritual battle that is the presence of God in the midst of a fallen world, and so um, so you've got this this um, enclave, and people use language sloppily when they talk about the kingdom because they talk about advancing the kingdom or the kingdom, you know, overtaking or overcoming the world. That's way too triumphalistic, at least in this phase. Um, what we actually are doing is inviting people out of common space into sacred space with sacred enablements. Um, and the gospel is about recognizing your need for that and receiving by grace what God gives 
to you in order to live in that space and in that kind of a way in the midst of a fallen world and to be testimony to stepping into this sacred space. And so the kingdom is this sacred space in the midst of the world. The world's not going away. It will always be there. It will always be the world, at least until Jesus comes and fixes it all. Okay. Now, you notice I haven't said anything about eternal life in heaven up to this point, uh, because heaven in one sense is um, is the establishment of the full presence of God, but both on earth and in the cosmos in which all unrighteousness will be done away. That's what's coming in the future. And it's not this kind, kind of um, idealized, uh, permanent, static state that we will live in down the road. It's, it's also infused with this ongoing relationship and functioning with God, but in an environment that will be totally different because it will be rooted totally in peace and shalom. So when we think, if I could just kind of summarize that, when, when we're preaching the kingdom, it really is a holistic, it's a holistic message in, in which the gospels flesh out in all kinds of different ways. And at the center of it is this, there's the new covenant, um, which um, I'm glad you brought that in because it's it's a new covenant, which I think that that doesn't get focused on enough. Um, but it's the sacred space, and would it be fair to say, in terms of you know God's reign in my heart, is was that too limiting? That's no, that, well, that's very that puts it in very individualistic terms. The passage I like to use now, it's not a gospel passage but it's explaining the impact of Jesus' life and ministry, is uh, Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, you know, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And the key word there is power, okay? We're summarizing what the dynamic of Christianity is. The, the dynamic is power. Now, it's power not in terms of rank, okay? It's power in terms of enablement. And to see that, all you have to do is overview the book of Romans. In the first three chapters, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You ask, how much power does a dead person have? Okay, that's not a hard question. You don't need a PhD in power mechanics to figure that out. Okay, a person who's dead doesn't have any power. They don't have any capability at all. Okay, you get justified. So you get your sins are forgiven. And if you think in Old Testament terms uh, about being an unclean vessel, you're an unclean vessel that gets cleansed. That's the washing picture of Ezekiel out of the New Covenant. And now because you're a cleansed vessel, the Holy Spirit can indwell you, okay, and make you holy. You move from being common to being holy, and you're given an enablement. What the Spirit does is make, that's why you have the fruit of the Spirit. And so when you come to Romans, in Romans, the latter part of 3, 4, and 5, you're talking about justification. But in 6 to 8, you're talking about sanctification. And the stress in that section is you're a new creation. The Spirit indwells you. You're now capable of walking in ways that honor God that you were absolutely incapable of in chapters 1 to 3. And so that is the gospel story, that power enablement, that, that connection that you get to God relationally, and the indwelling that connects him to you by his goodness and his grace. And now you're able to live this out. And we live this out. This is important because the end of chapter 8 of Romans, we live this out not only individually, we live it out corporately as well. So there's a corporate dimension. So the other key passage that connects to the Gospels and to the Gospel uh, that comes from an epistle is Ephesians 2, 8 to 22, which is the Protestant creed, salvation is by faith, you know, by grace through faith, 
not of yourselves, is the gift of God, lest no one should boast. And then most people stop there. Two, eight, and nine is what they memorize. But the passage goes on and says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Whole second half of the book talks about that walk, but there's something that's often missed in that move. Prepared for good works. So the next question is, what's the first good work that gets mentioned in the book of Ephesians as an example of the fact that the gospel has taken place? Well, it's a corporate relationship. It's Jews and Gentiles being in one body. It's the establishment of reconciliation, if you will, between formerly hostile groups. And now these groups can function together side by side. So one of the most powerful witnesses to the gospel that the church has is evidence of the reconciliation between hostile groups of people who now can function together side by side because they're united in Christ and God is at work in their lives. And that's the corporate dimension coming out. All that is kingdom work. Hmm. And it also is an explanation of what's the point of salvation. The point of salvation is an act of reclamation and reconciliation that restores what was lost with Adam in the fall in the world. So the kingdom is a place where the fallen world gets unfallen, if I can say it that way. And in the midst of its unfallenness, it gets connected to God and the possibilities for peace and shalom get re-entered into the creation. Hmm. Mm, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, since you've taken us to the epistles, um, I heard someone say, um, quite a learned person, um, uh, recently that he often uses the epistles to interpret the gospels. Now, I cringed when I heard that, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, well, actually, one could argue that that's what I just did, but the other reality is, is that what the epistles are doing is taking the Gospels and interpreting the, them for us so that we can make sense out of what the Gospels are about and where it's taking us. So it's a dynamic. It's not a, a one-way. It's an, it's an interactive cycle that's going on. The epistles are designed to ex explicate why it is Jesus came and what he was about in doing what he was doing. So you, so one doesn't kind of sit over the other. They work in conjunction with each other. And we need to appreciate how they connect. Um, and sometimes what we do is we segment them off. And we say, well, the Gospels don't really count. That's because we struggle to make sense out of the Gospels. Um, epistles are much more straightforward. They're propositional. Uh, they work with ideas. Um, they, you know, present, they, they say what they mean, they tell you what its purpose is, that kind of thing. With Gospels, you're dealing with narrative, and narrative does stuff indirectly. It doesn't say it as directly. It's still teaching, it's still intent in, in giving its theology, but it does it through in a completely different way and means that we're not used to. And so we struggle more directly with what goes on in the Gospels than we do with the epistles. And that's actually why some people are attracted to preaching the epistles rather than the Gospels, because they can grasp them more easily, believe it or not, uh, uh, versus the Gospels. And the other reason we struggle, too, is because the Gospels, in terms of their content, are mostly prior to the cross. And I've, I've heard this a lot, um, that you know, they have less application for us because they are prior to the cross. How would you respond to that? Well, simple response is, ah, bah, humbug. Mm. Uh, um, uh, they are written 
to an audience that is post-cross. Yes. And they are written with applications that are designed to be post-cross. And then there's a very important passage in Matthew that people sometimes forget. And that is the Great Commission in Matthew, which, which says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Okay. Well, in the context of Matthew, that's the content of the discourse material and teaching material of that gospel. So it is designed to be put into practice. It is designed to be applied. It is designed to speak into our time. Now, we do have to do so with some theological sensitivity between, you know, what is happening now and what is yet to come. And so eschatology is an important part of how we read this material. By eschatology, I mean eschatology featured us. We're actually in the eschaton now as far as the New Testament is concerned. We are children of eschatology in believing the gospel. But, uh, but you need to keep your eye on, uh, on what it is that Jesus is teaching because the core ethic that he teaches, actually, what's really interesting is the core ethic that he teaches actually comes out of the law and the prophets and is an application of something that God has always been doing with people pre-cross, uh, in the midst of the cross, and post-cross. That doesn't change. Yes, and in fact, um, as I've looked into it, all of what Jesus, is te- Jesus teaches, you can actually find scattered throughout the epistles in terms of his ethics. Yes, you can find it. Well, the interesting thing is you can find it in the epistles, and if you, if you really pay attention, you'll see that in both of those locations, you'll also find it in the Old Testament and the prophets. Yes. Um, how much should we focus on how much should the big picture of the go- a particular gospel writer that we're in inform us on a particular Sunday we're preaching in a text from a gospel and Luke for for example we'll use Luke because his he's got a purpose um, a, an explicit purpose anyway he's writing to Theophilus to give him certainty to give him assurance how much should that always be in our minds as we are preaching on a, a particular text I always say to students that when you're working with a text the the issue is not to move too quickly to universalize it the issue is to understand the context to which it applies um, and then you use other text to see, is this something that's particular to this particular set of settings and circumstances, or is it something that is a little more universal? Um, and, and the reason you do that is because um, there are certain passages where the intent is, um, is contextually driven. You know, one of the passages that we abuse in some ways with this, although the theological truth is true, is where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst in Matthew, which is actually in the midst of a discussion on church discipline. Okay, that's where it's really supposed to apply. If you all agree as a community that this person needs to be disciplined, I'm a part of that. Now, we universalize that, but the reason we universalize it is, of course, because we believe that God is everywhere and we're related and connected to him wherever we might be. So the general application you get out of that passage in the church is applied to all kinds of situations, not so much illegitimately, but not with the central focus with which that passage was originally given. And I think that that just being aware of that difference is significant in thinking about what you might emphasize as you talk about certain passages. 
I often think that when we come to, and this of course applies to Bible reading in general, that when we uh, come to the scriptures, we um, are too quick to jump to application. And some of this relates to um, perhaps what you've been you've brought in earlier about peer pressure and mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. Um, and I remember the first course I ever did at seminary with Howard Hendricks, Bible study methods. He really he laboured observation. You know, observation. Don't run to interpretation. Don't run to application. Um, and it seems to me that you know you're kind of emphasising the same thing here. Um, slow down, but I was just thinking, is there anything more to say to somebody who is preaching the Gospels? How can they avoid running to universalizing too quickly? Is it just slowing down? What are the other things that they can do? Well, as you know, when that class was taught, it's still taught today, it goes, you know, observation, interpretation, application, and correlation. Uh, I actually think about it in in with those four elements, but in the uh, different order: uh, observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Because correlation will help me see where my where what what the scope of the passage might be, and whether there are limitations on it. And the way I get a grasp of that is to look at the topic at large. So I I tell people. You know, one of the challenges doing topical messages, this is a whole nother podcast, but uh, one of the challenges of doing topical messages is that you're located in a particular passage. And if you universalize it and don't pay attention to specific elements of the context, you may run smack into another passage somewhere else that qualifies the scope of that passage in one way or another because it addresses the topic from a distinct and related angle that may impact the way things go. I like to illustrate this whole problem by thinking about 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. I know it's not a gospel, but it's a great text. It's the question, should I eat meat that's been offered to idols? Okay, that's the question that they're dealing with. You actually get four different answers. Okay, go in the marketplace, buy the meat. Don't ask any questions. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. If you're in the temple, and it's meat offered during an idolatrous service, you shouldn't be there and you shouldn't be doing that. So it's the exact opposite answer. Okay, you're in a meal. Someone feeds you a meal, meat offered, uh, a meat, and you don't know whether it's been offered to an idol or not. Paul says, eat it. Someone mentions, oh, that was offered at an idol. Okay, now you're on a diet. Okay, you're not eating that. You're not eating that piece, piece of meat that's been put in front of you, whatever. Four different answers, depending on a set of circumstances, each of which impinges on how you are to view that area. That's correlation. Uh, That's contextual correlation. I'm also talking about textual correlation with other texts on the same theme. And when you do themes, which are really about what does the Bible say about this topic and life, if you don't do correlation, you aren't going to handle the theme properly biblically if you're not careful. You're going to universalize where it doesn't belong or you're going to, in some cases, narrow too tightly where it might need to broaden, but you don't know that without knowing what other texts say about the theme. Be sure to check out the next episode for the rest of this conversation. Thanks for listening to The Preacher Podcast. If you've got a question or topic you'd like answered on a podcast, then please email alan at preachit.nz. If you'd like to know more about Preach It and the training we offer, go to www.preachit.nz 
or check out our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Ruffian Beats with music by Samuel James. Catch you next time on The Preacher Podcast where we want to serve those who want to preach better.